Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. There's nothing I enjoy more than recording live episodes of The Guilty Feminist. It's so wonderful to be back out on stage meeting you all and sharing our hypocrisies and insecurities once again, as well as our noble goals. We've been doing this show for seven years now, over 350 episodes, and there's a lot in our back catalogue that you've never heard or forgotten. So once in a while, we're going to use this regular Monday slot to give you a little look back in time. I've asked various Guilty Feminist regulars to cast their minds back over the shows they've been in and the shows they've enjoyed listening to and pick some favourite moments to relive. This week, it's my regular co-pilot, Jessica Foster-Q. Over to you, Jess. Hello, I'm Jess Foster-Q, one of the oldest co-hosts of The Guilty Feminist, by which I mean I've been doing it for a long time. Not that I'm actually old. I'm 39 and we all know 39 is the new 19. And yeah, these lovely twits of the Guilty Feminist have let me cobble together for you some of my favourite moments from my time co-hosting the podcast. What a flipping treat. I can't get over what a ride my life has been on since I first started joining in with Debs on the Guilty Feminist. It's been a bloody good one. Um, I hope it has for you too. I think we should start at the start. No, I was a guest on a show hosted by Debs and the magical Sophie Hagen and the topic was shoes. (laughs) Um, Do you like hearing a woman bundle from topic to topic to topic with nervous abandon? Well, tuck into this. How are you? Very well. What what are you wearing on your feet? Well, (laughs) it is a kind of a flip-flop. Is it Jimmy Shield? A bit more of a... I really wanted to say, I actually got it from the shop. I don't even know it's in Peckham. It's called Jimmy Shoes. Alas. Um, no, it's like a sort of a bit more look at me than a flip flop. The name of it is called a sexy flip. And um, <laughs> guess who makes them? 
But the reason yeah. we're talking about shoes, we normally talk about, you know, we recently did an episode on anger, and we talked a lot about Brexit, and we'd often do a lot sort of more substantial topics. The reason we wanted to do this... <laughs> just just apologising in advance. I sort of am, but the reason we decided to do this was because there was a news story about a woman who turned up for a temp uh, reception job, and she was sent home uh, because she refused to wear heels. They said, well, you've got to do this job in heels, and she said, well, why? How will that make me better at the job? I yeah. don't like wearing heels. And they said... You just have to, and we're going to send you home. The company said it wasn't their policy. It was the policy of the the temp contract people. And she made a big fuss about it and said, I'm going to have to be... It was a reception job where she was taking clients from the reception desk to the conference rooms. And right. she said, I just don't want to be walking in heels the whole time. And I don't think I should have to. And they said, well, that excludes you then from this job, which she needed. And what do you think of that, Jess? This is disgusting. I would... <laughs> I am on her side. Yeah, I don't feel any conflict about that whatsoever. I've had enough temp jobs in my life. Um, if I, at any of them, had they been told that I had to wear... I was gutted once at a temp job that I had. Like a, I was there for years. <laughs> Things were going so well so fast. Um, and, um, and they said, can you please stop wearing flip-flops with chipped nail varnish? Oh, did they? And I, even then I was like, fascists <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a really high-end finance place where everyone that was coming in in their brolly was worth like a million pounds and I was there like tramp um, but um yeah so I'm so far the other end of the spectrum I can absolutely see the woman's point I do not understand any context unless the job involved genuinely getting things off high shelves <laughs> and it was like an international step drought uh, a, a ladder apocalypse then there's no reason to ever require a woman by necessity to wear heels in the workplace where does it come from in my head the first thing i think because i'm a tiny bit biased is that it's it kind of makes women a bit weak it looks like it's hard to like run away really efficiently in yeah. the high heels <laughs> is that a th- true yeah. yeah. What I mean, it just feels like another like oh, you know, you can wear these things that makes it uncomfortable to run, and then you can wear those other things that makes it uncomfortable to run. And yeah, I think it's um, I'm really conflicted about heels at all in the sense that I have a pair. I generally have a pair max and. Like you, Is, so you mean like, a pair? A That's pair. not. I thought it was a brand. A pair. A second. I thought shit. I haven't even heard of this I brand. Genuinely, she's so chic. I imagine. I'm going. I'm googling next. Say a pair. A pair. Can't find them. No. I'm nailing this, pretending I've done it on purpose. Thing <laughs> like chip nail varnish as well. Um, no, uh, I. The maximum I'll ever have is a pair of, uh, <laughs> of heels. I. I think that they're so uncomfortable. I think that even if they feel nice like you were saying, in the first few seconds, and it goes horrible so quickly. But it just feels like the sort of thing that, as a teenager, I understood the desire, I had that desire, I wanted to fit in, and I'd get them, and then I'd be in agony. And then I just think anything where you think you have to go through any sort of pain, really, to achieve beauty. I can understand why teenagers did it. Like I remember when I was a teenager, this lip gloss came out <laughs> that we all went and bought, and that had it said snake venom in it oh, yeah. and it stung your lips so it made your lips more pouty because yeah, they yeah. were in screaming pain yeah yeah and we all went out and bought it we're like yeah i want that pain <laughs> and it, so it feels like for me heels are the same sort of thing that we ought to essentially just grow out of but 
on the cross side as a grown-up still occasionally I whack them on when I want to feel sexy and even though I can't run in them and I can't I mean it's so impractical it's kind of sometimes worth that first few minutes of how sexy you feel I don't know if that's because I've got really short legs and I'm not being down on my body by saying that I should say I've got like a really long torso (laughs) power stumps Um, but like um uh, which apparently in Mongolia is hot. They they have their tribes where they nine and ten year olds they hook them up. They predestine their marriage, and this is not very feminist. They like line a few girls up, nine or ten year old girls for a nine or ten year old boy to choose a future wife. But one of the things he has to look for is good strong legs. Really? Yeah. Anyway, none of them are in heels. Um, I, I think sometimes <laughs> I'm really, really contradictory. Uh, but I, yeah. So sometimes I feel sexy, but I think that's ridiculous. Thing. But the thing is, we do feel sexy in them because we've been told, we've watched all the movies, and yeah. we've we've seen all the billboards in which that is sexy. I was having this discussion with a friend mm. yesterday because I was thinking about it, and she said the thing is, my legs just do look better in heels. She said they look longer, and you know, sort of the muscles is straight. And I said. Why is it better that your muscle is stretched? In what world does that look better? But we just, of course, in our paradigm, that's what better looks like. And we were both going, oh, yeah, why why is that sexy? Why is that better? But there's something about sometimes women in business say to me, extra height. That if they're with lots of six foot two men and they're sort of five foot six, it just makes them feel taller and bigger can give you more status. Bigger can sometimes indicate status. It's a lovely way to end any conversation, really, isn't it? I'm just going to start saying that and then turning and sashaying off into the mist, my great big ass swaying proudly in the wind. Next up, um, let's have me telling my birth story. It was two and a half years after the event. I had started to find catharsis in telling this pretty harrowing um, story um, I had, uh, at the Edinburgh Festival, I think 2017, um, I've been asked to do something at, in the storytelling tent, in the BBC storytelling tent, which was a thing that year. And I thought, why not tell my birth stories? I'd had it written down, scribbled down somewhere. Um, and I remember finding it actually in performance, even just as a story, very emotional and thinking, oh God, actually, I think there's something in this. So this on the Guilty Feminist podcast on an episode, the theme of which was story, so it still felt pressure off in terms of um, joke rates, was my first ever attempt of turning it into something closer to stand-up. And later it ended up as one of my favourite bits of my show, Hench, and I'd say one of my favourite bits of stand-up to do that I've ever had. Cheers, thank you. Hello, you all right? Yeah. Good. I'll tell you a story. A little while ago, I heaved out a baby. Uh, you're correct not to care. Uh, <laughs> because of overpopulation. I knew about the overpopulation and overconsumption, and I did it anyway. Selfish. Just to set my stall out from the off, I'm very fit and well, and my son is a giant, happy, healthy two-and-a-half-year-old unit. 
<laughs> I was so excited to be pregnant. I very, very much wanted a baby. I got all the advice from the midwives and all the rest of my middle class around me about the two types of birth I could choose from. I could either have a clinicalised, hospital bed, drug-filled, manic birth, or if I wanted, I could have a lovely one. <laughs> I decided I'd like a lovely one, please. I read all three pamphlets and I got very excited about the serene, hypnotised, potentially orgasmic and crucially pain-free water birth that I'd have. Mmm. Lovely. Friends would tell me their harrowing birth stories and I'd think, oof, poor them. Thank God I've chosen a lovely birth. <laughs> During my pregnancy, one friend who'd given birth six months before told me uh, she knew she'd opted in advance for an epidural uh, because she said she knew she already that she didn't feel, deal very well with physical pain. And I chuckled. I remember thinking, that sounds like exactly when to opt for an epidural. And that's why I won't need it, because I am very strong. <laughs> I'm actually wonderful with pain. <laughs> I'm always lifting such heavy shopping. And when I was 13, my PE teacher said in front of the whole class, you, Jessica, are an absolute powerhouse. <laughs> Admittedly at the time, that was mortifying. Now, as 34-year-old proud feminist, I love being called a powerhouse. Admittedly, no, I'm not a perfect feminist, and if they're gonna call me a powerhouse, I'd still rather it was about my career as well as my huge muscly legs. <laughs> I won't need drugs or help. I'm a coper, a really independent powerhouse of coping. Anyway, I was so gleeful at the news that hypnobirthing meant I could simply choose not to feel pain, and I didn't even finish my book about it. <laughs> I had some CDs to listen to, but they would send me to sleep in minutes. Even better, I thought. The training is going to go in extra deep if I'm getting it subliminally in the night time. <laughs> what is it, hypnobirthing? As I recall, breathing in and then out. <laughs> A few pages into the book, I'm like, nailed it. You had to do things like imagining your tuppence as a flower, thinking about a silver glove. <laughs> Don't think they meant like on a suit of armour, I assume they're more sort of like super jug exfoliating shower mitt. <laughs> I don't know, I never finished the course. <laughs> <laughs> and the other bit of hypnobirthing was about being positive about everything. You had to go, there's no such thing as pain. Contractions are called surges. You won't need to push. You can just cough it out with an particularly intense love feelings. And anyone who says to you that labour or childbirth hurts should be shut out of your life forever. <laughs> My due date loomed, and as instructed, I shunned anyone who was worried or nervous about me as negative influences. Get away from me, I chanted. You'll upset my flowers and gloves. <laughs> my due date came, exciting, and then that day passed, and then another day passed, then another day did, then another ten days did. <laughs> curry, walking, nipple sex, curry, walking, pineapple, walking, wanking, curry, nipple wanks, curry, curry, mainly curry. <laughs> And then my labour started. Tweaks and twinges for about 12 hours. I walked for miles, meeting friends for lots of decaf coffee. See, I thought, this is easy. 
and then it actually started. <laughs> at the end of my road. It took me an hour to get 100 metres. Every time I got more than three steps, I'd have to stop, bend over a neighbour's wall or hedge, and quietly growl, stunned, white knuckle and sweaty everything in a pain suddenly so severe, I couldn't see. <laughs> crawled retching to the front door of my flat <laughs> and then up the stairs Mikey, my partner, got home and like we'd always planned, started making us sandwiches <laughs> Of course he did <laughs> Of course he did and timing both the length of my contractions and the gaps between them using the app we'd downloaded, of course we had <laughs> Whilst I lovingly explained to him, There were some gaps between them. There were 30 second gaps between bouts of pain lasting between three and 15 minutes, a pain so all-consuming it was otherworldly. I felt like all of my insides had grown personalities of their own, fallen in love, fallen out again, and gone to war. <laughs> Still searingly arrogant, however, my first hazy thoughts at this point were, hang on. No one could breathe through this pain. No one could ignore this. Because this isn't meant to happen until the end. Which means, this must be the end. <laughs> I'm going to have one of those births that's all really intense, but over in an hour. We're going to hospital now, I sang to Mikey. In the large public waiting room at the hospital, that's where I began to do screaming. <laughs> System of a down, Ramstein guttural, animal visceral screaming. Maybe that's where the lyrics of the Ramstein song comes from. Here comes the sun. <laughs> Finally, an hour and a half later, we were seen into an examination room. Even after all that wait, we were apparently jumping the queue a bit because of a mixture of availability and the distress I was causing to those around me. <laughs> Once in the examinating room, the door closed. Finally, I thought, I can push! <laughs> Mikey told them she already wants to push, so they rushed to examine me, and I imagined the head coming back up with a little slippery baby in it. <laughs> Actually, it came back up and went, you're only two centimetres. <laughs> that basically meant I wasn't in labour. <laughs> this wasn't even the start of it. <laughs> My baby had turned back to back the wrong way round, hence the wanting to push and there being no let up in contractions despite not technically even being in labour, but the pain, the death wish level pain was just the normal start of the process. <laughs> then I had another contraction, so I screamed and screamed and shouted and begged for every possible drug under the sun. Knock me out! Knock me out, please! And they said, yes, what you'll need to do for now is go back home and try a few paracetamol. <laughs> then, as a physical demonstration of how well I deal with pain, I projectile puked and puked and puked all around the room like an exorcist. A, a day's worth of decaf coffee and a hardly chewed sandwich flying all over everywhere. Look at me with my amazing strength and coping. Why did I ever, ever think I was good with pain? Where the fuck did I get that arrogant, ignorant notion from? I thought about it afterwards and thought, why did I think that? I've never even broken a bone. I haven't even got my ears pierced. I never ever felt any real pain until then. Why did I think I'd be calm when actually now, thinking about it, every single time I've even ever stubbed my toe, I've shouted and sworn, fuck out! I'm not a calm person. 
I wish, I wish I'd actually known what to expect would be unbearable, actually unbearable pain, and that I could have had them known for months in advance that I need drugs, lots and lots of drugs, rather than feeling like a classic wanker with this birth plan that essentially said, don't you dare try and force pain relief on me. I'm actually already a powerhouse. <laughs> None of my pain was out of the ordinary. 353,000 women are experiencing that same pain now. And a lot of them will be managing that same pain fine. <laughs> I wasn't a powerhouse, I was a mug. <laughs> now, those of you in the know about these things would be, or not in the know about these things, would be, how is she remembering all this? This story can't be true. It is, uh, because actually, after you have a baby, you do forget everything. You get hormone rush that erases all of those memories for you. It's the reason why people have more than one baby. It's like eternal sunshine of the spotless womb. <laughs> but I wrote it all down. I wrote it all down, blow by blow, before my womb got wiped. <laughs> We'll do this quick, for all our sakes. The next eight hours there were a blur, but I didn't go home. We were put into a room and occasionally visited by a volunteer, but not a medically qualified person who could administer any drugs. I never got any drugs. It turns out that the hospital was brutally understaffed that night. I howled and contorted and felt so frightened I wanted anything to stop the pain. I wanted to die, and I roared that request at anyone who would listen. I remember overhearing various people whispering to each other after briefly a midwife's head would pop in, and they'd say, she just isn't labouring very well. Yeah, no shit. But there was nothing abnormal about this, nothing. I just wasn't very good at it. And it wasn't until my blood pressure was rising and the baby's heart rate dropped that meant both of our lives were in danger that we got any attention at all. We were rushed into a hospital room and with no pain relief, I repeat, no epidural. I had an episiotomy. If you don't know, don't ask. A vontuse, that's like a plunger to tie and unblock the baby from my birth canal, like you would a toilet. And then when that failed, forceps. And they did pull the baby out with the most disgusting pop sound that I have ever heard. And at 2.17, my son was born. Initially, he only scored one out of ten on his APGAR test, which means he was dead. That's the test they do to see how alive you are. After five minutes, he was at four out of ten. Then after six minutes, he was at ten out of ten. Then my boyfriend, who'd been calm throughout all of this, lost his mind and cried his soul up out through his eyes and couldn't stop for hours and hours until I had to ask him to go home where he went and cried for seven more hours. <laughs> I am very fit and well and my son is a giant happy healthy two and a half year old unit. A lot of therapy later I understand now that I am someone who struggles to say yes to help. As a result of the true story I've just told you I'm working very 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 hard to change that. <laughs> And whilst we're there, let's continue on a parenting theme, shall we? God, I've fully forgotten one of the jokes I had um, when my son was a tiny baby that you're about to hear. Um, hee hee, how fun is this? I have a baby and I'm lucky enough to live somewhere where they're at my local cinema. They do a special screening where you're allowed to take the baby. So the film is sort of equally ruined for everyone. <laughs> Um, but I was very grateful for that I really liked going to the pictures and I actually in those sort of early months was able to go more than I ever was normally uh, and it was brilliant and it meant that at 19 days old my son saw his first ever film Suffragette uh, so on the one hand he's already a brilliant feminist but on the other he did make me have my tits out for the whole thing um, <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk about knocker feeding um, because that is uh, a thing where sometimes I feel like people are asked to cover up or not. I'm not talking about breastfeeding in any sort of braggy way. I think that the pressure that on women to breastfeed is now gone beyond helpful to the point where there's so many women feeling like disastrous failures and it's not helpful. Also, I just think you get people that have this kind of reverence for it. You get people who say, I just find it really magical. Um, and when I hear those um, women, I think, well, she just hasn't tried any of the really good drugs. Um, um, but before I had the kid, I knew I wanted to try and breastfeed, and I didn't know how shy I'd be about feeding in public. Turns out, not at all! Um, but I didn't know that, and my friend said, well, do you want to borrow my cape? And I went, you're what? She said, cape. Some people call it a cloak. I went, pardon? Do you mean a cape that you just get to wear in the day? Not just for the special Game of Thrones night. Or as I call it, Wednesdays. Um, and she said, yeah. So I thought, fabulous. I went, yes, please. I shouted, fabulous, a cape, yes. Um, but then I had the baby, forgot I had it and was regularly going to my local calves and no one batted an eyelid. It turned out, luckily for me, that where I live, most people were sensible enough to prefer there to be a shard of tit out in the corner than a screaming child. Um, uh, and then one day I thought, ah, I'm seeing that friend, I'll give it back. And then I thought, no, it sort of goes against all of my sort of hatred of waste to have borrowed it then. I need to try it. So I went to my local calf and I popped the cape on I don't know if this one happened to be sort of white with sort of the odd baby blue stripe <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I popped it on and um, for the first and only time since having the kid I did feel self-conscious I did feel like everyone in there was looking at me and was whispering about me because they were <laughs> because everyone in there was thinking why is that prick come dressed as a ghost <laughs> I do think there's a massive amount of work to still be done about perceptions of breastfeeding in public and whether or not people should cover up. I blame for that, not people actually, I blame advertising for thinking that we constantly need to have the horn to be able to buy anything and I just don't think we do. I, don't get me wrong, I do think that, that norks are fit. I think they're gorgeous. Um, and I don't have an issue with them being sexualised per se. But I don't think that a tit is a sexy thing when it is feeding a kid. Uh, I think we should be capable and evolved enough to see things as doing different things when they're performing different functions. But unfortunately, advertising world and manufacturer of clothes for women can't see this yet. And if you go to buy breastfeeding clothes, for example, on eBay or online, and Bear in mind, these aren't sexy items of clothing. These tend to be sort of large floaty tops with a flap or a hatch. And sometimes an inconspicuous side zip. They are never, ever being modelled by someone who is feeding a kid, ever. They are always being modelled by someone who is tiny and generally posing in a... This is hard to do for audio, but posing in a coquettish way. <laughs> bum out, boobies out and sort of handling the hatch as if to say want to sneaky peek my leaky nip nip 
I just think that is fucking absurd. That is absurd. Bums are gorgeous. Bums are very beautiful, sexy, gorgeous things, not when they're having a shit. <laughs> no one's into that, are they? Apart from, I assume, John McCrurick. <laughs> Libelous, perhaps. Um, but you don't see adverts, do you, all over the internet for toilet paper with people going, mmm. <laughs> Just dangling, wafting a bit sexily around their bum hole. So there's work to be done. I think there's work to be done. And I think I'm a, I'm a scruffy person. I think I've always... I feel comfy scruffy. And I've always had a issue I think of being told what to wear in the 80s when I was growing up I was frequently called a tomboy and I didn't care I was told when I was five I was going to be my mum's best friend's um, bridesmaid and that I would have to wear a dress and I was furious I was five and I was furious and um if it gives you an idea of how attentive my parents were, this, <laughs> um, well, I mean, I wouldn't be a stand-up if they were attentive. Um, I, I sat, while they both watched television, I sat under a desk in our lounge, and, I mean, it's incidental, but I did eat an entire box of Cadbury's Dairy Milk miniatures, bring them back, no one noticed, and then cut all my hair off. I had really long hair, and I cut it all off just with massive, great big stationery, like normal paper scissors, and just cut it all off until... And my mum, when she did notice, cried. And it was just tufts, and she was like... It's, she just kept saying, it's just tufts, it's just tufts. I wanted to look like a boy at school called Dan Wills. If you still live in Swanage, Dorset, Dan, and you listen to the guilty feminist, I wanted to look like you. Um, and my mum was crying, and my dad was... I can't remember his reaction, probably. Annoyingly, for mum, indifferent. But they, they were both... They were really upset, and there was this terrible tension, and I remember this five-year-old sinking feeling, I've done something awful. It, I later, I've seen photos of the wedding. I was still allowed to be the bridesmaid, but they put a floral arrangement upon my head. <laughs> So I've actually, there's no photographic evidence of the tufts. But I remember after all of this, feeling that awful thing of like, I've done so, I've really upset these people I need and I love. I remember going upstairs and looking in the mirror going, I like it. <laughs> Thanks. It's just tufts. It's just tufts. I might get that on a t-shirt. Now, um, I feel brave putting this next clip in because it's essentially Debs taking me down for using a slur, which I'm sure could be a one-way ticket to Council Town if uh, I use it on stage now. Um, but what I love about this, not only is what should be a really awkward conversation for Debs um, to have to have isn't, because she does it so artfully, um, but also it's just a beautiful example of a debate done well that is also so 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 funny I couldn't have possibly written this um it had to just happen organically fascinating magical wonderful stuff if I don't say so myself and really I mean those entirely as compliments for Debs talking about things we think are normal and shouldn't like just things that are normal in our society that it's just like okay politicians kissing babies I'm going to put that out there Really? Why is... I mean, most, I always get a bit funny about this. When people are funny about um, strangers kissing babies or touching babies' faces, I always think, oh, no, that's me. I'm all over babies. 
Yeah, but that's fine. You're not a politician trying to win a vote. Oh, I see. That's oh, a bit creepy. I get it. I Do you know understand. what I mean? I thought you just meant creepy. general affection towards infants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank no, God. I just don't, does anyone else think it's just a bit creepy that somebody who's trying to influence you to give them more power in society comes at you through a newborn? And it's always an old white man doing it. I mean, it's never like some young, hip, female, Asian, cool MP, is it? Who's kissing your baby? Well, I don't know. I've never seen that happen. Because they don't need to do that to appear human. <laughs> That's why they do it. That's why the old white men it's do it. They're like, the look lizards. how human I am. And then their tongue comes out like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like a snake tongue. And you don't want that on your infant. You don't want that on anyone who's newborn. Oh. It's like the kiss, it's like a fairy turning what up at a christening and giving a curse. There's <laughs> a load of Tory spittle all over you. Oh. Christened with it. Unpleasant. Um, do you, what I do you know think is normal? I know that happened. What, the politicians kiss babies? No. That's a cliche, yeah. Famous. It's funny because I know that I'm, I don't... I'm not upset by not feeling as clever as I'd like to feel. And that the fact that I do consider myself at sometimes to have just missed out on massive things that seem to be normal for most people to know. I once asked someone if Barcelona was in Spain in my 20s. But, you know, I've got a law degree from a really good university. I'm not worried that I'm not clever enough. But my real concern is it's entirely self-inflicted from probably having first glass of wine when I was about eight. <laughs> I think the misspent youth and have then continued that into adulthood has left me all respect to myself in some ways cretinous. You have to remember we've all got gaps in our general knowledge. But what Yeah, and I've never seen an old man politician go off with a baby. <laughs> it's not get off with. It's, a, it's not get off with. There's an affectionate kiss on the head. I'm not meaning to imply. But what's oh, lovely about feminism funny. is we're all there to plug each other's gaps. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> we're all there to plug each other's knowledge gaps. <laughs> not sex gaps, knowledge That's gaps. That's Ali G's idea of feminism, darling. It is. That's not the real... Exactly. Yeah. And if you are a cis white straight man listening at home... Yes, we are in our pyjamas right now. <laughs> and we're about to start the big feminist pillow fight that we, that we have at precisely this time every Monday night. Even bank holidays. <laughs> um, what you're describing there, Jess, is gaps in general knowledge. And that Plug should, it. That should not... <laughs> should not be equated with any words that are slurs. You don't need to do that. You're one of the cleverest people I know... We all have gaps in our We've general knowledge. We've never done a quiz together, mate. No, but you would there's... spend your entire. You wouldn't. You'd be able to concentrate on the quiz because you're so busy plugging my gaps. Listen, I love plugging your gaps, and I love it when you plug my gaps. We all plug each other's gaps. We've all got an equal amount of gaps, I think. Outrageous. Some people are very good at general knowledge, and some people are very. You can just bang out a funny line like that, and that's a kind of cleverness. Do you know what I mean? Like we're all clever in different ways. That's what I think. And I think we should not call ourselves C-words. <laughs> oh, you're telling me now I can't call myself a cunt? <laughs> I, ca I reserve the right to do that forever. <laughs> slur all over myself, mate, thanks. <laughs>
Okay, so I do still stand by the fact that I can sometimes do things that are so unclever that I would love there to be a good, funny, short, satisfying sounding word for me to use about. Um, But for these purposes, consider me schooled or indeed really thoroughly well plugged. Now, let's have some confessional stuff. Sorts of things, I think. I once did a gig at the very famous comedy store and the feedback was that the audience might be confused because they couldn't tell if I was a man or a woman (laughs) from my voice. I once got a gig from a man called Eugene Cheese. (laughs) I was very new to stand-up and I phoned him and asked for a gig and he said, I wouldn't normally book a woman, but because you sound like a man, I will. And I do sort of, I think, sound, look, maybe older than I am. Uh, I was an only child, so my parents let me hang out at their parties. I had a lot of adult company and not enough sleep from a very early age. Uh, I was grizzled and weary before I even had a pube. Um, I smoked for years, that, and I'm from the West Country, so started drinking when I was 12. Um, All of these things have added to it. When I was about 14, I loved looking older than I am, so I could get served everywhere. Now I do as well, but I went through a long patch. I'd say from about when I left home to go to uni for about a decade, I hated it, I really cared. And I don't know where that came from, but I hated having that assumption made about me. And I once, I was 22, I worked in a video shop and I was working with another 22-year-old called Drew, who was a tall guy with, like, long blonde hair. I mean, intellectually, socially, he was a fucking vortex. But (laughs) he... um, who was also in a band. So quite often there were teenage girls hanging around, chatting up Drew. And one time this group of girls came in and they said, how old are you? How old are you? To him and he said, why don't you guess? <laughs> and they were like, oh, I don't know, like maybe like 22. And he was like, yeah, spot on. <laughs> well done. Why don't you guess how old she is? to me and one of them looked at me and went 30 and I don't know what my face did but they all ran away (laughs) yeah and now I'm 33 and I don't care I don't care even if you thought I was 40 I'll tell you now I'm 33 I hope to look like Mary Berry by the time I'm 45 bring it (laughs) why not must learn to change people's names but then less than I think there's less than zero percent chance that that actual mist of a man drew will ever listen to the guilty feminist (laughs) um 33 I was when I recorded that clip let me tell you six years on I'm slightly less keen to look like Mary Berry by the time I'm 45 in fact freedom of speech aside I don't think I should have been allowed to do that joke no comedians under the age of 45 are allowed to do jokes about aging from now on including me Hey, Guilty Feminists, this is Deborah. We've got some shows coming up at Soho Theatre on the 30th of May and the 31st of May. Co-hosts and guests include Chloe Petz, Laura Lex, Sarah Keyworth and sketch group Egg. We're also at King's Place on the 5th of June, the 22nd of June and the 24th of July. Co-hosts and guests to be announced. For tickets, go to guiltyfeminist.com and click on Live Shows. My play, Never Have I Ever, is at Chichester Festival Theatre on the 1st of September and tickets are on sale now, going fast. Go to cft.org.uk and look for Never Have I Ever.
And on the 21st of August, there'll be a special episode of the Guilty Feminist podcast there, live from Chichester. Also, you can join our Patreon to get ad-free episodes and to support the show. Please go to Apple Podcasts and review us. You can review any episode that you liked. If you've reviewed us before, you can review us again, but please give us five stars. It helps other people find the podcast. Or you could tell someone you know who might enjoy the show on a WhatsApp or with your face. And now, back to the podcast. Now, um, we've gone for an excerpt from a crossover episode I did with Debs with my own podcast, Hoovering, which is about eating. So we called it The Hungry Feminist. <laughs> but it means we've got a proper job now, Jess, doesn't it? It means yeah. like we have to be at an office at 10 in the morning. <laughs> so not stressful. <laughs> I should have said seven. In the I've morning. lost the room. I've lost the room for proper job, people. I like, fuck you and fuck you. And we're there till half past four some days. <laughs> Writing jokes with our buddies. All right, I know these writers' room hours don't seem long if you're a nurse. But they feel it. They're not, no, they're not, they're not. But then we have to work at night as well, so then we have to still be bouncy at this time of night. And still, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, gang, but I'm still at work. Now, bouncy's pushing it. I'm... <laughs> I sometimes get by on buoyant. Buoyant, buoyant, <laughs> Barely buoyant. So for this reason, I need a lot of stamina at the moment because it's also, it's intense. You're thinking, oh God, don't fuck this up, you know, all of those things. So I'm doing two things. One is I'm doing loads of yoga, like serious loads. And last week I got into a place with yoga where I'd done it so many days in a row. It was like doing drugs. I got so floaty with it and I was doing like hot yoga and stuff and I was like, oh my God, I'm the stretchiest I've ever been. I'm so bendy, I'm just like spaghetti. Oh, it was amazing. And then I had two days off and I went back to being so stiff that Brittle. I was... I was like an ironing board. I was like an iron... Two Such days later... a brutal word, isn't I went it? Brittle. From, I went from spaghetti to ironing board, from flexible to brittle in two days. Because... Even in the two days off, can you just, just find a couple of moments for a child's pose? <laughs> I did, yes, I did, I did, I did. But I had to do it properly, didn't it properly? And the other thing I'm doing, gang, is mindful eating. Because what I find is when I get stressed... Eating brains. No, Jess, that is not what I meant. Like a zombie. No, Jess, no, Jess. But it's not a diet. No. (laughs) It's not, it's the opposite of a diet. Now, the reason I'm doing it is because when I get stressed, my mindful eating goes out the window and I just, if there's a packet of hobnobs on the table, I can eat 12, like, easily. Just be like... Right, bragging. I just get... (laughs) I get stressed and I just... I think the part of my brain that wants calm, love, peace, attention, devotion, Mm. you know, any of those things. Devotion's too strong. That sounds like I've got a God complex. Take that one. one Looking for devotion from 12 hobnobs is a beautiful thing. (laughs) Worship. I love the hobnobs to worship me. (laughs) So... So, it's a losing battle, mate. And it makes me feel out of control. It's not about, oh, my body... Yeah. It's not about body issues. I mean, it is a bit, because I'm a woman and I live in a patriarchy, but most of it's about, I don't want to feel like a runaway train at a time when I want to be focused. And if I'm eating without realising or without being able to stop, I get into this runaway train mode and it affects my mental health. So I've decided to go into a programme of mm-hmm. 
yoga and mindful eating. So I've started... This is my challenge. I've signed up to something called Beyond Chocolate. And a lovely lady does... It's like little podcasts. You love it. She talks you through your stages like... First stage is great. The first stage... I'm only on the first one, to be honest. Uh, The first stage is eat anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds fucking amazing. It's great. Jesus. No, but already... Already... You know, you have the good foods and the bad foods, the healthy foods and the naughty foods. She said, just get rid of all of that. And all you have to do is check in and tune in and go, what do I really want now? But you've got to just take time to go, am I hungry or is this something else? And if I do want food, what do I really, really want? And I have to go, oh, mm, no, not that, not that, not that. And it's like being a very fussy eater as a child. And already I'm eating half as much food and enjoying it twice as much. Amazing. Then you have to sit there and really but enjoy you know, it. So I have a therapist that I work on this stuff with because uh, I'm, I'm on the spectrum of binge eating disorder. You're welcome. <laughs> um, uh, and I think actually what you're describing is how you end up approaching a relationship with eating if you ever come at it from a psychiatric mental mm-hmm. health point of view oh, and I it's see, all about I reconnecting see. it's not about restriction it's not no. about it's take, about taking all the moral value out of yes. and re- all the reward sins but it's so hard if your work life balance isn't right that's what I'm saying that's why I'm having to do it because my work life balance isn't right so I'm having to sit there like this and go what do I really want to eat but really listen to my body because my brain says, this is the story my brain tells. You want all of the chocolate all of the time. That's lying. My body oh, doesn't might want that. Not be. No, your body doesn't. <laughs> your brain does, but your body doesn't. And so here's the odd news. <laughs> what my body wants when I really listen is mostly vegetables, which is annoying. I'm tuning in, trying to hear... <laughs> no, I'm tuning in. I'm trying to hear chocolate Sunday. It's not what you hear. It's not what you hear when you really assess what you really, really want. <laughs> It's true. I don't know if you're really listening. (laughs) (laughs) It's what my body wants. It wants. It it just wants wants a machine. No, it does want sugar sometimes. It does want sugar. But since I've been doing this, I forget to snack now. I forget. No, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it's really working for me. Well, that's a really important thing. I have have an app, of course I do, that reminds me to snack so that when I get to meals, I'm not so ravenous that I go... (laughs) (laughs) The sort of mindful eating I'm doing, I only eat when I'm hungry and then I'm really tuned into what I actually really, really want. But then I sit and eat the food without my phone, which is... I know. It's hard. But you have to sort of really enjoy it. And I find that I stop a lot more. I'm like, I don't really want this second piece of toast. No, no. And then sometimes I want it half an hour later, but I don't just shovel it in anymore. It's really great. I'm loving it. I'm it's really I'm, loving it. I'm it's happy helping. for you. And I think it's brilliant. The only thing I would say is, I don't think when you get things that are like a website or an app or something like that, then it's not necessarily a quick fix. And you should be very kind to yourself if at times of peak stress, etc., that goes up the shitter. Oh, that's the whole point. Of, <laughs> because but it Beyond takes Chocolate years. says that. No, Beyond Chocolate says, yeah. just be curious as to your process. So if you do eat a pack of hobnobs, just go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder how I'm feeling when I'm doing that. It's true. So I had one of the funniest conversations in my life was a conversation with my therapist where she'd had me do this thing where every time I felt inclined to eat when I knew I wasn't hungry, Mm -hmm. I had to stop and think about what I was feeling in the moment. And my first ones were all the classics, anxiety, stress, fresh out of an argument, etc. And then it went on and I was like, oh, 
massive adrenaline. Okay. And then as this sort of week went on, I realised <laughs> it was every emotion. <laughs> I shit you not, right down to very mild relief. <laughs> I was walking home from a day's little odd jobs here and there and I realised that my evening gig was cancelled. I was up for doing the gig but it turns out it was cancelled and I had an evening free to myself and my first thought was, could get a burrito on your way home for dinner. <laughs> and I stopped in the street, it was on Regent Street and went, no! Not even mild relief! <laughs> I'm not writing the emotions down anymore. I'm just writing all. <laughs> and it's not, I think I'll get an aubergine on the way home before dinner. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Congratulations. I'm just bitter with no, twisted jealousy. No, 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 because I genuinely do think when you sit there and you ask your body what it wants, not your mind, when you say to your body, what do you need? There's a little tiny voice in your body deep down that goes... Vegetables, please! You've been feeding me chocolate too long and I can't stand up anymore. It wants them. It wants them deep down. It's deep, Jess. It's deep. This voice yeah. is very far away. It's virtually imperceptibly deep. <laughs> well, for the record... Uh, that felt like such a lifetime ago. And these days, um, I've come a long way. I'm not using apps for anything, let alone, well, I don't, I am using apps in my life. I'm not, <laughs> I am, I am alive in the world. I just mean I'm not using um, diet tracking apps. I'm not monitoring my snacking. It's just tracking and monitoring and blah, blah, blah. I'm not interested in that. And um, I do, of course, I bloom in love of vegetables, just being cheeky. Um, but no, I still don't fully fall for the idea that there's some invisible difference between your mind's secret needs and those of your inevitably perpetually hungry body. Oh God. But what do we know? What do we know? Let's have um, on the same theme some of my earliest um, anti-diet material uh, or a very early fledgling version of material that ended up getting shiny and finished in my hench show, um, which you can still watch on um, Prime TV on Amazon, by the way, if you fancy it. Hashtag shameless plug. I don't weigh myself because how much I weigh is not how I choose to value myself, is what a perfect feminist would say. <laughs> I don't do it because it makes me sad. Because <laughs> um, I'm very heavy and they say you're not meant to be that. Um, the only time I weigh myself is if I'm going on holiday and I don't know how much my suitcase weighs. Because um, often you're only allowed 23 kilograms, aren't you? And I don't know if you know, you're not meant to put the bag directly on the scales. It's designed for human hooves, so you're meant to get on the scales with the bag, without the bag, and do your own maths. Weirdly, in that context, doesn't affect me emotionally at all. I think a big part of that is I don't really know what kilograms are. <laughs> and really, in that context, pressure's on the bag, isn't it? <laughs> You're never going to get through all those three big books. You're only away for a week. Um, I think I've got much better at knowing in advance the things that are going to make me very sad. Like, um, even a few years ago, I had to have some very close loved ones, some friends, some family sort of have a word with me, really, and say, you know, we're really worried about you. We don't know what's going on over the last few months, but, you know, we're a bit panicked and you definitely need to get some help and we don't know what it is, but everyone's very upset on your behalf and you've got to get this sorted out. We don't know if it's a nervous breakdown or maybe if you need to talk to someone even about bipolar or something, but it turns out I've just been off carbs. <laughs> um, 
And all my life, any diet I've ever done has um, always had a very immediate, very obvious impact on my mental health, but it hasn't stopped me trying. Every single one. Um, the earliest one I remember with any clarity, I was 11 and I did the apple a day diet. I don't know if you know that. It's where you just have one apple all day. Sometimes I swap it in for a banana because variety is everything. Um, and I got um, very, very tiny for my frame. Very tiny as 11. I went quite great. Every day I passed out on the way home from school. I passed out every day. I was in a hot room. Every time I was in a hot room. So my, my body was covered in scrapes and bruises and grazes. And that went on and on and on. And at my very tiniest at 11 years old, after maybe five months of that, because it was still on my frame at my tiniest weight then if you'd put me on a BMI chart I was still just in the obese category because I am fucking hench um also maybe it's a little bit of an indicator that somebody's weight might be a slightly overly basic bitch arbiter of whether they're healthy or not Like, do you know, I mean, I mean, compared to actually looking at somebody's body, look at the complexities of someone's body, looking at how they're treating it, what they're putting into it, what they're doing with, what, what's coming out of it. It's all good and well if you've got a Lamborghini, but not if it's my nana driving it. Um, <laughs> I think your weight is relatively arbitrary unless you're a baby or a jockey or an astronaut or if you're about to do a bungee jump. <laughs> um, if you are about to do a bungee jump and you're filling in that form, that is one time. Do not use your Tinder weight. Um, <laughs> I haven't been on a diet now for over a year and it's the happiest I've ever been in my life. And the stats are in now. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence, big, juicy, sciencey facts that less than 5% of diets work, which means they don't work, um, which makes it all the more boggling that when I know every single time I say that to any kind of audience, I know there'll be some people in the audience going, oh, what are the 5%? Um, <laughs> And that's why there's still lots of people making a massive amount of money out of the diet industry. And it's fascinating to watch those people react to the growing consciousness that their product is uh, harmful. Weight Watchers, for example, have rebranded as WW. But in a very savvy move, for months they refused to say what the W or the W stood for. <laughs> <laughs> Could have meant anything. <laughs> Sounds like someone started to tell you about a website they're on and then just sort of trailed off. <laughs> probably through hunger. <laughs> oh, did I tell you I'm WW? Oh. <laughs> Forgive me if I don't 100% trust the artist formerly known as Weight Watchers. Um, Slimming World are worse. They do a thing where if you eat anything calorific on a Slimming World diet, it's measured in sins. It's measured in sins. Is that the future that we want? Where <laughs> in the supermarket choosing your dinner going, what should we have? That looks nice, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, that looks really nice. Should we get that? Oh, I can't eat that. It's got over 50% shame. Don't get me wrong, I'm fully aware that food can be good or bad nutritionally. Of course it can. Obviously it can. I just think it's so patronising of Slimming World. And I think the vast, vast majority of adults, an enormous amount of children as well, fully understand that nutritionally a Mars bar and maybe an apple or an orange are going to do something different to your body. But it's got nothing to do with morals, has it? Fair enough, the Mars bar might like give you some excess energy, might make you a little bit bigger than you were before, might make you a little bit higher than a little bit low, might make you a little bit queasy, but it hasn't done anything morally bad, has it? It's a Mars bar, it's never kicked a dog. That's it. It's a Mars bar. It's never denied the Holocaust, has it? Because it's food, not Liam Neeson. <laughs> That's it. And now we're going to roll back and back to one of the first episodes I ever did, where the topic was stereotypes. Let's, let's chill into our stereotypes in that case. What was your challenge? I wanted to look at how much stereotyping I do, and I wanted to be 
honest with myself. So I took a five-day patch and every time I met someone new, and by met I mean encountered, I just had a look at, after the fact, whether I made any generalisations about them. And then if I did, I had to think about why I felt the need to do that. (laughs) And um, (laughs) in quite sort of positive news, I think in my day-to-day life, I am pretty good and when I'm just using shops or just out and about or whatever I think that I pretty much do take people at face value and don't do much stereotyping except when I'm driving my car (laughs) and then I am a disgusting human being. <laughs> I am an ageist, classist, BMWist, Yarisist, white vanist, cyclistist, teenagerist, nasty, angry fuck. <laughs> I am. I am not a consider. Sure I'm okay. very, very rageful in that space. I'm very short-tempered, and so, however considerate and progressive, my conscious self is mm. my in my root at my core in mm. my amygdala i am brexit <gasps> wow and i'm ashamed that's a that's a that's a serious fucking confessional there you are the living embodiment of brexit when behind a yeah. wheel <laughs> No, I, I, I do understand what you mean. And I think it's because when you're driving, there's an anxiety, there's a fight or flight, because you actually yeah. could kill someone or be killed. So perhaps you're... you're I you're... think that justifies it a bit too much. Like, I think that it was put to me very well that the car is a, an extension of your personal space, and I agree that you are in a situation where there's this jeopardy, but not really driving around London. No, Most of my rage is because someone wasn't polite enough. Because no. <laughs> they don't let you out or they cut in front of you. Don't or... say thanks or you're welcome. <laughs> if I say, if because I everyone some, stops if, to say even thanks. Even if someone stopped to let me pass and I say thanks and they don't say you're welcome, <laughs> I put the window down and go, you're welcome! <laughs> Honda Jazz. Of course you are in a Honda Jazz. So what are your secret stereotyping behaviours that have you discovered? What do you think about cyclists? What do you prejudge cyclists as like? Um, Morally superior. Um... Any cyclists in? Just go, yeah? Uh, Just cheer if you're morally superior. No, correct. They are. So they've lived up. Yeah, that's fine. So that's fine. Teenagers, what do you think about teenagers? Arrogant, don't care if they die. (laughs) They Uh, don't seem to care if they die enough. They just stand in the road if they're with. It's always with their mates. Okay, do you, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to put this out in this this very tentative way. Do you have any bias confirmations around women drivers? Um, The room holds its breath. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think, as a rule, that women with children in the car let enough people out of junctions. All right. Do we have any women in? Uh, Any women with children? Just cheer. Okay. Are you less likely to let somebody else out because you think, fuck it, I've got a baby on board? Yeah. 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 (laughs) 
all of your you prejudices changed. are actually accurate facts. Oh, really? Yeah, I think they're well, accurate facts. Successful stereo. And as a woman with children in her car, I let so many people out at junctions. Buck the trend, guys. Buck it. Um, what I'd love to share with you now um, is a very baggy, super, super early version of my Thrunt joke. Yay! I've got a uh, three-year-old son who's a sexist. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> because he's three, the worst insult he can possibly give you is, you're not my best friend. Um, and he's, to be fair to him, just as bad at compliments as he is at insults. A compliment he gave me recently on holiday last week was in front of my whole family. I was in a bikini. He said, Mummy, I love your tummy. <laughs> because it's massive! <laughs> and don't tell my son, but I mean, obviously he is not my best friend. He's three. He's <laughs> objectively poor company. <laughs> but to flip it round a bit, my best friend probably is my mum. Um, <laughs> some people believe me, some people went, ah, yeah, fucking right. Um, it is, it is my mum. And that doesn't mean that it's an easy relationship. But we are really, really close friends. So um, I'm going to tell you a story because very recently, um, I'm 36 years old and um, I'm recently out of a very long relationship. And I knew, um, because my mum is such a close friend with me, that I knew I needed to come out to her. I was 36 years old. And the longer it went on, the longer the weeks went on of me just knowing this about myself, that I wasn't telling my mum. It felt duplicitous not telling her. So um, I thought, I'll wait for an apt opportunity. And then my mum came up uh, to London where I live to visit and we went out for lunch. And she, unfortunately, immediately gave me a great opportunity um, and said oh so in any of the last few years you know while you've been in that dead relationship um, have you ever <laughs> have you ever um, sort of met anyone and thought oh well if I was single maybe I'd get with them and I thought oh god I'm gonna have to do it now I'm gonna have to do it now and I went yeah I have but um, we need to have a conversation because um, probably that next person, and in the last few years, has always been, in my head at least, um, not going to be a man probably this time. Might be, but probably not going to be. And do you know what? She was so cool about it, but it was still funny. <laughs> because uh, it's very unlike my mum. We were having lunch and she just started eating really fast like that. Just smashing her lunch in like that. Then she just started listing every single gay female couple she's ever known. Going, yep. And then there was obviously Sally, and when she, and she came out of a long marriage, and then she decided she was gay. And then there was obviously, and obviously I work with Jeanette, um, and she's very happy, isn't she, with her partner? And they're all so happy, aren't they? Thank God I've got Rudy, my grandson. Anyway, they're all so happy, aren't they? And they're all so fine, but their lives are so complicated. But I'm absolutely fine with it. I'm absolutely very chilled out about it. And you'll find I'm very chilled out about it. I'm totally chilled about it. I don't even know why we're talking about it because I'm just so chilled about it. I'm just totally chilled about it. And absolutely. Everything's absolutely fine, actually, so I don't even know why you're telling me about it. It's no biggie, is it? It's no big thing. It's no biggie. It's no big deal. It's absolutely no biggie. It's no big deal at all. Um, and then I was like, okay, great. Yeah, sure. Steered the conversation elsewhere. And then we left the place we were having lunch in, went across the road, and my mum turned to me deadly seriously and went, I've never found a woman attractive in my life. <laughs> One, don't worry, mum. I wasn't going to try and get off with you. To <laughs> To chill out, I didn't catch it off you. Mm. 
there was a little bonus coming out story for you there, wasn't there? Um, that never, ever made it to finished stand-up um, for me because as my mum is, perhaps not my best, but my my real close friend, I've promised um, not to do stand-up about her anymore. And frankly, I get it. Um, oh, imagine imagine if your child was a stand-up and they kept, <laughs> they kept doing... They kept doing jokes about you. Um, that would be shit, wouldn't it, actually? And um, I had amplified um, her reaction to me coming out to her there. But I also want to say, God, she dealt with it so beautifully. She dealt so brilliantly with my adult onset queerness. And um, she just totally rolled with it. And I um, I know there will have been a million tiny reckonings internally for her over that. God, 36 years old, I was a little baby. I was a little baby. I don't know if I mentioned it, but I'm 39 now. Still in my 30s, weirdly keen to keep mentioning her 39, not 40 yet, 39. Talk to me in mid-July, I might be less chatty about my age, but right now I'm 39, which is fun. Just a woman in her 30s making a podcast. Now, you love laughing and I love laughing, so shall we just have an enormous medley of some of the best I'm a feminist butts that Debs and I have ever shared. I uh, need to add a disclaimer, though, that at one point in this, I do a really bad impression of a Scottish club booker. And yes, she heard it at the time. And yes, she messaged me about having heard it and having hated it. Oops. I'm a feminist, but my favourite type of apples are called Pink Lady. (laughs) Some of mine are quite short. <laughs> Every time I buy one, I you feel think, guilty. Oh, you feel... <laughs> I'm I did, oh, so why couldn't could... I prefer a, a really androgynous Braben? Well, actually... <laughs> actually, are, are they all stereotypes? Because there's also Granny Smiths, which is a bit patronising as well, yeah. isn't it? Granny Smith. Is there one called a Jonathan Delicious? <laughs> is that just me? Have I made Gold, that up? Golden. There's a gold. Is it golden delicious? It's not yeah. a golden. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I'm currently growing my eyelashes, and then now actually hitting the back of my glasses when I blink. <laughs> I am growing my eyelashes. Can you see? Can you see how, how long they are? I'm growing them. You think? Do you think I'm making this up? I'm growing my eyelashes. How do you? There's a serum. There's a serum. So they did before you trim them. <laughs> No. Do you trim them? No, no. <laughs> I had regular size eyelashes before, and then my sister in New Zealand gave me this uh, potion. What the fuck? Called Flash. No, it's true. <laughs> called Flash Eyelash Serum. Now, it's quite expensive. I say my sister gave it to me. She took me to the very expensive makeup counter and told me what to buy. <laughs> and I bought it. It's Flash Eyelash Serum, and you put it on every night. And a friend of my sister, she was getting married, so she was doing it for her wedding, but she did it up too high, and eyelashes started growing out of the middle of her eyelids. I know, so she, she, she cut back. <laughs> I am a feminist, but when I clicked on a link to read a review of Women and Power, a manifesto by Mary Beard, I got distracted by an ASOS advert <laughs> for a red carpet, indecent, sequin shoulder pad midi dress bought it and forgot to go back to the book I still do not own Women and Power a Manifesto by Mary Beard I don't even know what the, um, there were some words in the middle that, I, that could have been another language 
An ASOS advert for... No, 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 I understand what an ASOS advert is. <laughs> What is a MIDI? A MIDI? Oh, a MIDI is um, it's not a Mini and not a Maxi. Oh, fucking hell. It's just below <laughs> the knee. I don't feel like that's helped that much. Um, it's, it's a dress just below the knee. That's what it was called. It was, that's what it was called. You go. I'm a feminist, but my two-year-old son calls Weetabix pick-a-bitch. Um... <laughs> I've done nothing to correct him. <laughs> I think it's better than the original name. I think it, it should be the name of an app that people can use to <laughs> help them find a new bully. Oh, apologies in advance, this one's a bit long. I'm a feminist, but I had a really weird thing happen at a gig a couple of weekends ago. I was having a really lovely time at this gig and there was a hetero couple in the front row and about halfway through a 20-minute set, I asked if anyone in the room had also spawned, as in had children, and the woman in this couple said, yes, me, and I said, it's true, isn't it, what they say about it hurting? And she said, not for me, and I said, oh, was yours like an immaculate birth? Are you the mother of a deity? And she went, the mother of Satan, more like. <laughs> right? And I thought this was brilliant. So um, she then mumbled under her breath, I mean, I had a cesarean. But I was like, well, yeah, that's fine. But let's talk about this mother of Satan stuff. Like, how naughty are your kids? And then the bloke with her, her partner, kept chipping in. Every time I went to talk to her, he kept chipping in. No, she had a cesarean. And I was like... Thank you, sir. I was actually talking to her, right? And this went on and it went on. He kept chipping in, right? She had a C-section, as if I hadn't understood what cesarean was. And so I said to him, look, thank you for your mansplaining. And that went down well. Um, and he was furious and said, I wasn't, I don't even, what is that? I'm just explaining to you the facts. I said, well, the thing is, I'm here to do comedy, not a TED talk. Um, I, are irrelevant but I said but thank you ever so much for your help poppet and mimed patting him on the head <laughs> later on in my set he was shaking so much with rage and he had on a pink shirt and I said I can't concentrate because of how angry this man still is <laughs> and that went down well <laughs> and I said you've gone the same colour as your blouse oh <laughs> that was and that and I moved on to another bit, right? And then at this point, I thought, I could see his table shuffling. And it's right at the front. It's a very small, intimate club. And he stood up. He's shaking with rage. And he stood up and he stood by the stage and said, You think it's so powerful up there, don't you, with a microphone from the stage? <laughs> and he stormed out and he gave all the staff the Vs. He flipped the birds to all the staff on the way out. And everyone was losing their minds. And it was fun, right? And it was... <laughs> what do you answer that? And I did say, oh, gosh, I mean, I've really upset him. And we left it there. And I did say to it, I said, my favourite thing about this whole thing is how absolutely none fucks you give to the, his missus. And she was like, oh, it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's not the end of the story, right? So it's, it's, it's the talk of the night, and then that's the end of that stand-up's a weird job, right? But then the next week, halfway through the week, I get an email from the woman who books the club who's received a formal legal letter... <gasps> to her home address. No. The guy's a lawyer, and he's written to her saying that I physically assaulted him <gasps> and that I turned gender stereotypes on their head like some sort of modern sexist. <laughs> he called me Bernadette Manning. Oh! And said that I repeatedly mocked the difficulties that his wife had had in pregnancy and that I repeatedly hit him on the head. 
What? And what are they going to do about it? And this is why it's I'm a feminist but. As part I was of say, is the this conversation, still an I'm a feminist As part of the conversation I had with that booker, I offered to apologise. Oh. oh. I really want to keep playing that club. Oh, wow. I, she said, absolutely no fucking way. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> They're awesome. The stand are amazing. Yeah. Sandra, amazing. I said I've never had anything like that happen before. And she went, oh, we get the shit all the time. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I'm a feminist. But if George Clooney told me his marriage to Amal was just for show and he was a bisexual playboy and he invited me to some kind of Hollywood orgy, I'd be cool with it. (laughs) I'm not even that into that. I just, as you were describing it, I was like, oh, I'd love to watch loads of people go off with each other. (laughs) Are you voyeur at this party? Oh, yeah. Are you not participating? Oh, Depends on my mood that day. <laughs> what if, somebody... if I was ovulating, everybody there would get it. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I've got a really sexist baby. Um, he, he, of course. <laughs> but, oh, why did I do that? Um, he is so sexist sometimes. In what he, way? He sometimes says, "Stop talking, mubby." And once he said to me, am I a little boy? And I went, yeah, yeah. And he went, I'm not a woman. I'm not a lady. He's working out what everyone yeah, is. And, I mean, I and it's very funny if you're like trying to blur the lines of all this stuff, but he's two and a half. So I was like, no, I'm a lady. And he went, you not a lady. <laughs> you big, big, big woman. <laughs> That's a fair point. I mean, I may not be a lady, but I'm all big, big, big woman. I'm a feminist, but it takes me a third of a year to read even a small book. I'm so bad at carving out time for reading books that every single time I see anyone reading a book now, anywhere, I feel a twist of burning jealousy. I think, oh, well, good for you. Well done on your work-life balance, you smub public reading prick and then I immediately feel horribly guilty and then think all that time I was having that toxic jealous thought I could have been reading a book I'm a feminist but what Jessica Foster Q just said is true of me too but I would never admit it and so it's a part of me now that feels like she's a better feminist because she's more able... I think this is true now. This is a true one. You're more able to say, this is my real dirtiest linen. Whereas what I'm showing you is linen that I've worn once. (laughs) And I'm saying, this is the dirtiest my linen gets. Oh, I'm so good for showing you my dirty linen. But But my linen is so much dirtier than I've ever revealed on this show. (laughs) It can be... Why? That's a fit thing to admit. But also, the difference there is, one, you're a, lot, like, you, a lot more people are aware of things you say out loud than people who are aware of things I say out loud, so there's more riding on it. And you, and how you, is and that? Anyone that listens to this show hears everything you say as well as what I well, say. Well, this specific show, they will, yeah. <laughs> Some of them might turn their ear away when you're not talking, Deborah. That's how loved you are. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't fucking blame them. Um, <laughs> But also, I just am a filthy old filth, filth, a filthy old filth bag. 
I'm just checking. I'm, all the things I want to say, I'm probably not allowed to say. But I just think you're very able to just be like, and you throw it on the table. My partner hates it, and my child will one day too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah I, I need to learn to not tell the world every single fucking yeah. thing about it. Babe, I didn't want to say I wanted to be your family. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> definitely wouldn't want to live with you because it would all come up. As it is, it's just you tell the stories about you, and I'll say things like, oh, that time that I was wearing a dinner jacket and had a little bit of a thought. Oh! Oh! <laughs> oh, I think there's something very sexy in that, the mystique of that. So you ready mm. for some more sort of really brutal honesty? Yeah, go on, please be brutal. Um, <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I got a crush on someone in the gym recently, and um, not only had I not had any conversation with them, I hadn't even seen their face. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I'm accidentally bringing up a white middle-class sexist male baby. <laughs> um, so evil, so evil, that this week he's announced he doesn't like trees. <laughs> we were driving along, him in the back, me in the front, and I heard him going, oh, oh. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror and went, what? And he was going, And I was like, what's that? And he went, trees! <laughs> I don't like trees! <laughs> and I went... <laughs> and he went, it's not funny. <laughs> and I went, well, sorry, it's not. What have trees ever done to you? And then he flipped and went, oh, trees have never done anything to me. <laughs> I just don't like trees. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong with trees? And he thought about it for ages and then went, the leaves. <laughs> and then he went silly. I was like, what's wrong with the leaves? And he went, sometimes the leaves pinky me and boink. <laughs> boink, boink, leaves. Donk. It's like living with a drunk psychopath, isn't it? <laughs> it's like living with Trump. Same, same. I'm a feminist. But of all the friends' girls, I'd, <laughs> I'd most like to be Rachel, even though she's the most vacuous because she's the hottest. Also, I mean, she shaped the hairstyle of two generations. It's true. I'm a feminist. But every time I've been on stage and then afterwards I get tagged in a photo, I think, oh, here we go. Fucking rhombus body moving face. Pretend not to care. Like it. Click like. Pretend you don't mind. Go on. RT it. Go on. Tap the heart. Pretend you love it. Pretend you don't even care anyway. And even if you did care, you're thinking, ooh, aren't I a sex horse? But really, I'm not. Really, I'm thinking, oh, rhombus body moving face. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but this week I did a box fit class and hashtag this girl can't. <laughs> it was 75% fucking.
fucking skipping. <laughs> I thought I'd get to punch a bag. But it was, it was basically like, I didn't realise that I had any trauma I hadn't dealt with about first school <laughs> until then. I was like, Ugh, I just kept tripping on it, but I was like, don't give up, don't, don't give up. And now my bum bum still hurts, and that was Tuesday. <laughs> Will you go back, do you think? Yep. <laughs> Booked it. I'm a feminist, but sometimes in bed I say thank you. <laughs> Mine aren't as sort of poignant as yours, Debs. No. <laughs> I mean, it's all right to say thank you in bed as long as you haven't brought 50% of the work. I think if you've just lain there I think and if said... someone's done something I'm grateful for, I'll say thank you very much. <laughs> I'm grimacing with shame. I mean, how yeah. are you saying it? Thank you. Or are you going, thank you. Thank you very much. Good night. I'm not going to do an impression of me. <laughs> it's probably, you. realistically, <laughs> I'm not doing no, no. it. I just, we won't, we'll edit it out. We'll edit it out. Thank you. You won't edit it. I really fully intended to edit it out, but I didn't know it was going to be that good. That's not my fault that it was so good. She didn't edit it out. Um, good job, too, frankly. Fuck the bed. I have loved listening back to all that. I hope you did, too. Thanks for having me by your side for all this, Debs. I feel a bit emotional, to be honest. Buoyant on gratitude. That's what I am. What a platform to have been given. Thank you, Debs. Thanks to everyone who listens and has listened. Praise be to all the guilty feminists. Onwards. Oh, crikey, actually. And while I've got you, let's do the unguilty feminist thing of plugging some of the stuff I've got going on. Please may you listen to my podcast, Hoovering. It is all about eating. I couldn't love it more. It's my pride and joy. I put so much of my soul into it. I would love to have you, if you're not already, become a listener. You don't need to start at the beginning. Jump in anywhere. It's conversations with people about their relationships with eating, um, from the funniest, silliest stories to the most serious, heartbreaking, um, informative, educational, debatey, environmentalisty, um, eating disordery. Oh God, we get into everything. And some of them are just pure, fun, silly, and some of them aren't. Um, jump in, jump in. There'll be a guest. I've been doing it for five years, so there will be a guest you're interesting. You're interested in hearing the stories and opinions and jokes of. So um, please listen to the Hoovering podcast. Also, head over to BBC Sounds, and I have a comedy series on there called Sturdy Girls Club. It's a four-part, four 15-minute episodes. You have got time. It's all about all the different types of weightlifting and women that do it. But um, you don't need to be interested in weightlifting to uh, like it. It's jokes in a row. It's an, it's it's just under an hour of jokes in a row, which you can't really go wrong with. Um, you don't need to like weightlifting. You probably do need to like women, but... If you don't, why, why are you here right now? Last things last, come and see me do some stand-up. Um, follow me on social media, at Jessica Fosterkew. Thank you, thank you for listening to my guilty feminist best of catch-up mega rep. <laughs>
Here's a quick taste on what's coming up on this week's Media Storm. The government itself said we need to prioritize safety before status. One after another incident. Why didn't you like leave earlier? I'm like, no, I couldn't. The state must not be the facilitator of domestic abuse. For a local authority, the, the easiest thing to say is, I cannot help you. You don't have rights. Welcome to Media Storm, the news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last. This week's investigation, safety or status? migrant women and domestic abuse. The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.